Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros, episode 41, At the Crossroads. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm your host, Yoke Boy, and with me is Lady Gwyn. Yeah, hi there, and thanks for being with us today. We're happy to have you join us for an episode that's just a little bit different from our usual. Not long ago, listener Andrew Noonan suggested on Twitter that we do an episode all about the Inn at the Crossroads. And when we thought about it, we realized pretty quickly that it was a great suggestion. It was, so we're excited to bring you our analysis of the crossroads in A Song of Ice and Fire, with a big hat tip and many thanks to Andrew. We've found some interesting themes to analyse, and a perhaps surprising amount of connectivity that continues through the several chapters that take place at the crossroads. Yeah, so we've taken the four chapters that have the inn at the crossroads as their principal setting and analyzed them, looking for themes and similarities. These chapters and those themes and similarities have given us the opportunity to also revisit a favorite theory of ours, and we found there's an unexpected thread that meanders through the entire timeline of the main series and perhaps has its root in the past. So essentially our analysis today will cover four point of view characters and a theory, along with important secondary characters who are part of those stories, focusing on where they intersect at the crossroads. But we'll begin the episode with a look at the metatextual meaning of crossroads and inns, followed by a brief history of the inn itself. But first, we want to thank all of you who contribute in various ways to Radio Westeros, and as always, give special shout-outs to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Kelly, Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Wagerian, and Sister Winter. Yeah, thanks everyone, and if you'd like to contribute to keep Radio Westeros afloat and gain some of the numerous rewards available please head over to patreon.com slash Radio Westeros to find our campaign. And now it's time for us to head on over to the crossroads. Well, 
The Allman Brothers song, Melissa, begins with the words, Crossroads seem to come and go, and so it is in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's a major significance to a place that's so strongly characterized it figures more prominently than any number of minor characters weaving in and out of the narrative. A constant, but always changing. Here the Crossroads Inn, situated at the place where the King's Road, the River Road and the High Road to the Vale all meet, is a setting for numerous events, both on page and off that have varying levels of significance to the story. As we'll see, it's often the site of a change in a character's arc, or an unexpected meeting or intersection that leads to a new thread in the story. And as far as symbols or tropes go, none could be more appropriate for this type of narration. The crossroads can be found in mythology, dating back millennia, and in literature and music right up to our present day, with the single, simple, unifying theme of change. Add to that the particular symbolism of the inn itself as a meeting place or a staging ground for action, and we have a dynamic combination of tropes being woven together. So, before we start our exploration of the crossroads of A Song of Ice and Fire, we're going to take a brief diversion into the metatextual history and significance of the crossroads and the meeting at the inn trope as a way of revealing what George might be trying to say with his frequent use of this locale in the narrative. Okay, so first let's consider the crossroads in mythology. Across cultures, the symbolism of the crossroads is the same. They represent liminality, meaning a place that's in between, where two localities or realities touch. Whether it's the border between the real world and the realm of the gods, or the real world and the realm of the dead, mythology is rich with tales that take place at crossroads, and most traditions feature at least one liminal god. Yeah, that's right. Among others, for the Greeks, Hermes and Hecate could be found at the crossroads, with Hecate in particular being associated with necromancy or communication with the dead, while Hermes was a trickster and divine messenger. Mercury did a similar job for the Romans, delivering messages for his fellow gods, guarding crossroads and guiding souls to the underworld. While in African mythology, the trickster Legba guards entryways and becomes Papa Legba in Haitian voodoo, who facilitates communication between humans and the spirit world at the crossroads between the dimensions. So these types of gods are all connected to traveling, messages and communication, and frequently from the gods or the dead or the spirit world, and they also function as psychopomps, which are those gods who guide dead souls to the underworld. So in mythology, the crossroads and the divine beings who guarded them were symbolic of transitioning from or communications between one state of being and another. These myths and legends would lead to crossroads in real life being associated with spirits and that place in between temporal and eternal life. They were frequently used as a place to bury people who would be considered not qualified to go to heaven, criminals, suicides and strangely enough actors. Vampires were once thought to get confused by them and would be at their weakest and most vulnerable there, 
and so they were also reputed to be buried at crossroads. What's interesting about some of these associations is if you consider how dangerous a wrong turning at a crossroads could be in a world without maps or communication. Such a mistake could take you many miles from where you wanted to be and lead to untold problems, although there could also be fortuitous circumstances associated with following a wrong turning. At any rate, it's no wonder that a sense of menace or danger lurked about crossroads. To historical people, many of whom didn't travel very far from the villages of their birth, the crossroads would represent the unknown. In modern life, the airport, train station or other travel hub have replaced the crossroads as symbols of places where people move from one path to another, intersecting and embarking on new arcs. Modern humans negotiate these changes with ease for the most part, but it wouldn't have always been so. We also see the crossroads in literature. The introduction to Dante's Inferno can be seen as a crossroads tale of sorts, while comics ranging from The Sandman to Hellboy and The Hulk, as well as numerous fantasy novels, many of which we can expect George to be aware of, feature instances of crossroads symbolism, where spirits are met or summoned, or where change occurs. And one of the most famous American poems of the 20th century, Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, deals with the equivalent of a crossroad, noting the feeling of regret for possibilities missed that travellers may feel when they must choose one path and leave others behind. We've talked before about George referencing Robert Frost in his work with the poem Fire and Ice, and in this case, we were very intrigued to learn that George actually wrote an episode of The Twilight Zone entitled The Road Less Travelled, an alternate reality tale about a Vietnam veteran which is an obvious homage to the Frost poem and that sense of curiosity people often feel about their choices at life's crossroads. Okay, and finally, in music, Robert Johnson's Crossroads is a watershed blues song from the 1930s that continues to be covered today. It's often rumored to be about the composer selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads in exchange for musical gifts, which, incidentally, is yet another trope with a long and varied history amongst musicians. So these stories, and others like them, are associated with crossroads because their liminal nature made them ideal for things like summoning spirits. And we could probably go on endlessly with other legends of the same sort. But we think we've pretty well established the crossroads as symbolising a place where worlds or realities or locales join, and thus passing through them leads to a change in circumstance or arc. But... What about the inn? Well, the roadside inn itself is yet another popular trope. Consider that nearly every Dungeons & Dragons adventure and derivative story, movie, or video game starts off with a group of adventurers meet in a tavern. We also see the inn in Tolkien, where Gandalf met with Thorin Oakenshield off-page to plan the adventure of The Hobbit, while the next generation of hobbits meet Aragorn at the sign of the Prancing Pony in Bree, incidentally a town situated on a crossroads. As far back as the Canterbury Tales, characters have been setting out on adventures from inns, 
and in our own time, canons as diverse as Star Wars, The Wheel of Time, American Westerns, and Japanese Saburai movies all feature inns or taverns as the starting point of adventure. In A Song of Ice and Fire, there are numerous significant inns beside the one at the crossroads, but thinking of beginnings, the one that comes most quickly to mind is the Quill and Tankard in Old Town, as it's the setting of the prologue of A Feast for Crows, and thus begins the storyline of that book. So, having grazed the surface of the meta-symbolism of crossroads and inns, what do we make of it all in relation to our Inn at the Crossroads? What is George doing when he weaves this locale into so many storylines? Well, in the course of reviewing the inn's history and all of the events that take place there, we're going to make a case that he's bringing our attention to this particular locale for a very specific reason. We'll see arcs intersect, messages sent, choices made, wrong turnings and fateful encounters, and adventures begin. But we think it's just possible they're all leading us to one significant event that has yet to be related in the main story, but that will ultimately inform the entire narrative. And so, on that note, when we return, we'll begin our exploration with a brief look at the long history of the Crossroads Inn. The Old Inn, some call it. There had been an inn there for many hundreds of years, though this inn was only raised during the reign of the first Jeheris. In A Feast for Crows, Septon Maribald tells Brienne that there's been an inn at the location where the present Crossroads Inn stands for many centuries. The present inn was built in the reign of Jaehaerys I, the Targaryen king responsible for building the King's Road, about 200 years ago. Jaehaerys was the longest ruling Targaryen king, whose reign was marked by peace and prosperity, and who was responsible for codifying a uniform system of law and improving infrastructure around the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, and as part of those improvements, Jaehaerys ordered the construction or improvement of 2,000 miles of road stretching from Storm's End in the south to the Wall in the north. And because he himself enjoyed travel and desired closer relationships with his lords in far-flung places, he was known to use the King's Road on many occasions. And it was apparently on a number of those occasions that Jaehaerys and his Queen Alessane stayed at the inn, which was called the Two Crowns for a time in their honour. The inn is described as large, rising three storeys above the muddy roads, its walls and turrets and chimneys made of fine white stone. It boasted a bell tower and could accommodate over a hundred guests, a low wall surrounds it, while the south wing was built upon, quote, heavy wooden pilings, a reminder that once upon a time, the trident had actually flowed right past its door. Well, the bell tower actually came later, after Jaehaerys' reign, an addition that led to the inn being called the Bell Ringer for some time. 
Septon Meribald continues the history lesson, telling his companions that sometime after this, the inn passed to a crippled knight named Long John Heddle, who took up ironworking when he grew too old to fight. He forged a new sign for the yard, a three-headed dragon of black iron that he hung from a wooden post. The beast was so big it had to be made in a dozen pieces, joined with rope and wire. When the wind blew, it would clank and clatter. So the inn became known far and wide as the Clanking Dragon. Okay, and the Clanking Dragon is actually quite an interesting iteration of the inn. This was sometime prior to the first Blackfire Rebellion, so this Sir Heddle would have been an ancestor, perhaps, or some other relation to the knight Sir Tomard Heddle, better known as Black Tom, who was a son-in-law of Lord Ambrose Butterwell and features as one of the antagonists in the second Blackfire Rebellion, as described in The Mystery Knight. Yeah, there's no way to know for sure what the connection is between John and Tom, though we can say with certainty that White Walls, where the Mystery Night takes place, was nearby and that the Heddle family remains at the inn in the present story. At any rate, it was after the tenure of Long John Heddle, but before the events of the Mystery Night, that one of the more interesting chapters of the inn's history began. Once again, Septon Maribald takes up the tale. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother and took for his sigil a black dragon. These lands belonged to Lord Darry then, and his lordship was fiercely loyal to the king. The sight of the black iron dragon made him wroth, so he cut down the post, hacked the sign into pieces, and cast them into the river. Okay, so besides confirming that the Darries have been loyal Targaryen supporters for generations, what Meribald relates next is something many fans find significant with regard to the current story. One of the dragon's heads washed up on the Quiet Isle many years later, though by that time it was red with rust. So, the significant catch seems to be that a black dragon appears many years later as a red dragon. Add to that the fact that it washes up on a shore, and you get a pretty convincing bit of foreshadowing of a black dragon, or black fire, washing up on the shores of Westeros, disguised as a red dragon, or Targaryen. In other words, this is one of the more potent hints in the text that Aegon VI is actually a black fire, and not the son of Rhaegar and Elia. Yeah, this is one of those things that has been endlessly discussed in the fandom, and we mentioned it in our very own Blackfire episode, and it's an idea that we like a lot. One thing we've wondered about is the inclusion of House Darry in the tale. Darry loyalty to House Targaryen is storied, from their support of Rhaenyra and the Blacks during the Dance of the Dragons, and Daron II during the First Blackfire Rebellion, to their unwavering defence of Ares II during Robert's Rebellion. 
Over the years, the Darius lost sons and heirs, lands and power due to this loyalty, leaving them quite diminished in wealth and power by the time of Robert Baratheon's reign. But in the main story, House Darry has actually been all but extinguished due to the violence in the Riverlands during the War of the Five Kings. One of the last surviving Darrys is Lady Maria Darry, widow of Merit Frey and mother of Amory Gatehouse Amy Frey, who's married to Lancel Lannister following the War of the Five Kings, making Lancel the new Lord of Darry. Yeah, Jamie visits Lancel at Darry and finds him not over-interested in his young wife or his new holdings, but mostly consumed by his guilt over his illicit relationship with Cersei. He later returns to King's Landing and joins the newly reformed Warrior Sons. So we've considered how the new Lord of Darry might figure in the current story and wonder if there's some hint that Lancel will support Aegon VI, the apparent Red Dragon, over his cousin Cersei in the upcoming power struggle. While it would be in keeping with Lancel's desire to atone for his sins, which Cersei played such a prominent role in, and with the history of House Darry. Until the Red Dragon is revealed to be black underneath, of course, and what happens then, we suppose, would be anyone's guess, especially since we really have to wonder how long anyone who works against Cersei in King's Landing is going to survive into the Winds of Winter. Anyway, with that bit of theorising aside, as far as it concerns the Crossroads Inn, after the Blackfire Rebellion, the innkeepers seemed keen to disassociate themselves with dragons of all colours, and the inn became known simply as the River Inn. Once again, Merybald has an interesting tidbit for us. In those days, the trident flowed beneath its back door, and half its rooms were built out over the water. Guests could throw a line out of their window and catch trout, it's said. There was a ferry landing here as well, so travellers could cross to Lord Haraway's town and White Walls. So there's the explanation of the heavy wooden pilings the South Wing is built upon. But what actually happened to the river? Maribald explains that the river moved 70 years ago, it was. Or was it 80? It was when old Masha Heddle's grandfather kept the place. And it seems likely this would have been sometime during Maycar's reign, though we can't rule out that it may have been a little before. In either case, since we think it might have been a rainy season, similar to what we saw in A Storm of Swords, we wonder if we might get to see or hear about it in a future Duncan Egg story. In fact, since we expect that Duncan Egg will be heading north from White Walls in the next instalment, we'd give pretty good odds that we do see the River Inn in that story. And the reference to Masha Heddle brings us up to the present-day Crossroads Inn. As we mentioned, it would seem that the Heddle family have been the proprietors of the inn for many generations, perhaps as long as uh, 150 years or more. When Catelyn visits the inn in A Game of Thrones, she remembers having visited the place many times in her youth with her father. The proprietor then, as now, was Masha Heddle. Yeah, here's Cat's memory of the innkeep. 
a fat woman who chewed sour leaf night and day and seemed to have an endless supply of smiles and sweet cakes for the children. The sweet cakes had been soaked with honey, rich and heavy on the tongue, but the sour leaf had stained Masha's teeth a dark red and made her smile a bloody horror. And Septon Maribal voices a similar memory to Brienne. A kindly woman, Masha, fond of sour leaf and honey cakes. When she did not have a room for me, she would let me sleep beside the hearth, and she never sent me on my way without some bread and cheese and a few stale cakes. But kindness and generosity with cakes only get one so far in life when a marauding army invades your homeland. After the battle on the Green Fork between Roose Bolton's northern host and Tywin Lannister's westermen, Tywin would force March his army south, hoping to reach the River Road and make the journey west to relieve his son Jamie, who was besieging Riverrun. It's not exactly clear why Lord Tywin would see fit to hang Masha Heddle from a gibbet in her own innyard, perhaps for her role in hosting the party that insulted his honour by laying hands upon his son Tyrion. But we think it most likely that she protested at her inn being occupied by a hostile army. Yeah, that seems to make the most sense, given the characters involved. And Masha Heddle's body would hang outside of her inn for over a year. In that time, both Tyrion and Arya would observe it, and Maribald would later tell Brienne that one of her nephews would try to keep the inn open by catering to the many soldiers who now occupied the area. For reasons we'll discuss shortly, and possibly because the guy declined to remove his aunt's bones from the gibbet in the yard, this strategy was destined to fail, and by midway through the first year of the new century, the inn had been reopened, sans bones and gibbet, by two of Masha's nieces, named Willow and Jane, who, in an apparent callback to her long-dead ancestor who took over the inn all those years ago, is known as Long Jane. And Long Jane Heddle will play a fairly prominent role in one of the vignettes we'll be exploring today. But there we're getting ahead of ourselves. When we come back, we'll begin our exploration of the four significant chapters to take place at the inn in A Song of Ice and Fire thus far. Up first, we'll look a couple of years into the past from Long Jane's tenure to the early chapters of A Game of Thrones and the first time that we see the inn on page. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. The inn was a sprawling three-story structure of pale stone, the biggest that Sansa had ever seen. But even so, it had accommodations for less than a third of the king's party, which had swollen to more than 400 with the addition of her father's household and the freeriders who had joined them on the road. The Game of Thrones Chapter 15, the first Sansa point of view of the series, is also the first chapter to take place at the Inn at the Crossroads. The royal party is making its slow way southward from Winterfell and has arrived at the crossroads of the realm, a brief ride from where King Robert won his crown 15 years previously. Eddard has left the inn to hunt with the king, quote, again, and we get the sense that his focus is slowly being drawn away from his family by his new role. This chapter finds the Stark family many weeks into their journey south to King's Landing from Winterfell. As the chapter opens, Sansa Stark is truly at a crossroads in her life, moving from being a young lady of Winterfell nobly born, but nonetheless exceedingly provincial, to becoming a proper southern lady, the future wife of the crown prince of the realm. Well, on the one hand, Sansa has been groomed to be a lady all her young life, but on the other hand, life at Winterfell, so remote that singers hardly ever ventured there and visitors must have been few and far between, certainly failed to prepare her for the realities of life at the southern court. But while we'll very quickly see firsthand in her thoughts her propensity for romanticizing the world around her, the chapter actually begins with her being defiant to Septimordain and lying on her sister's behalf. Yeah, that's right. Septimordain does not approve of Sansa feeding Lady at the table. Or of Lady in general, it would seem. But Sansa is unrepentant, invoking her father and leading the scepter to say... You're a good girl, Sansa, but I do vow, when it comes to that creature, you're as willful as your sister Arya. And so, in a chapter that will deal primarily with the marked contrast between the two sisters, we have an early and pointed comparison, one that actually goes right to the heart of the girl's shared Stark identity. Sansa is as willful as Arya when it comes to the direwolves, which not only symbolize how Stark, but, as we'll learn, have very deep and intimate relationships with their girls. And then, in the next moment, we get a flash of solidarity that the rest of the chapter will carefully deconstruct. Scepter wants to know, where is Arya this morning? And in reply it says, 
She wasn't hungry, Sansa said, knowing full well that her sister had probably stolen down to the kitchen hours ago and wheedled a breakfast out of some cook's boy. So Sansa, who has up to this moment been portrayed as something of a goody two-shoes, in the opening paragraph of the chapter, defies Recepta and lies for her sister. Rather than act the tattletale, Sansa makes up an excuse, fully aware that Arya is off getting into trouble somewhere. And since, as we said, the main thrust of this chapter is to set up contrast and division between the two sisters, we think the fact that the chapter begins with a foundation of commonality is critical to where we believe the arc of the two sisters is headed ultimately. Yeah, we do. We view their story as a pair of elliptical arcs curving away from each other from a common point, and finally bending back towards each other. And we feel that the two will ultimately be reunited and are best viewed as a complementary pair progressing towards the same goal. As such, analysing this chapter almost has to be done in conjunction with Aya 1, eight chapters earlier. Back at Winterfell, we saw the first real interaction between the two sisters. A schoolroom spat, viewed from Arya's point of view, sets up not only Sansa's perceived goodness and overall perfect comportment, but the essential divide between the two. Yeah, Arya was deeply unhappy doing needlework with the other noble girls and Princess Marcella. She causes an awkward scene, feeling inadequate, but Sansa's very well behaved and knows how to control the situation. In fact, we see her lie sweetly to the Septa here as well, with the effect of keeping trouble at bay for her sister for another moment. But then, critically, when Arya compares herself to Sansa internally, she, not her perfect older sister, comes up wanting. Here's a passage. It wasn't fair. Sansa had everything. Sansa was two years older. Maybe by the time Arya had been born, there had been nothing left. Often it felt that way. Sansa could sew and dance and sing. She wrote poetry. She knew how to dress. She played the high harp and the bells. Worse, she was beautiful. Sansa had gotten their mother's fine high cheekbones and the thick auburn hair of the Tullys. Arya took after their lord father. Her hair was a lusterless brown and her face was long and solemn. Jane used to call her Arya Horseface and nay whenever she came near. It hurt that the one thing Arya could do better than her sister was ride a horse. Well, that and manage a household. Sansa had never had much of a head for figures. So Aya Wan gives us Aya's vision of Sansa, highlighting Aya's feelings of inadequacy while setting us up for the slow reveal that, in many ways, Ned's troublesome youngest daughter takes after his younger sister. Dead these 15 years and yet pointedly mentioned on the first page of the first Eddard POV. In Sansa 1, we see the reverse. Sansa describes Aya's exuberance and curiosity about the world as they travel, her love of people and of riding and new experiences. She clearly doesn't understand the strange being that is her sister, who by her very presence had a way of ruining everything. But in its own way, the description is quite joyful to the reader. 
Sansa also notes the bruises on Arya's arms and wonders where they come from, never dreaming that her willful sister is secretly practicing swordplay with the butcher's boy, a companion whom Sansa thinks smelled of the slaughtering block, whose presence made Sansa feel sick, but whom Arya seemed to prefer to her own sister. And while it seems that Sansa despairs for her sister, she also notes how their father doesn't seem to be bothered by Arya's behavior, and there's a shadow of a hint of envy for her sister's unbounded curiosity and enthusiasm. But there's also sheer horror. Sansa finds Arya on the bank of the trident, and is trying to convince her to come along and be normal, and get ready for their planned audience with the Queen. Arya is unimpressed by the massive wheelhouse by Marcella and the promise of lemon cakes and tea, telling Sansa casually, I don't like the Queen. She won't even let me bring Nymeria. Sansa is literally breathtaking that her sister could be so brazenly honest, and the offhand remark serves to reinforce early characterizations of Cersei as an antagonist, while at the same time foreshadowing Nymeria's fate, just as the first Arya chapter sets up the conflict dynamic between Arya and Joffrey that will roar to the forefront in Sansa 1, causing such extreme cognitive dissonance for Sansa that she wouldn't recover before fate would separate her from her sister in a most unexpected way. Carefully reading these two chapters side by side, We see from the outset some small commonalities and solidarity from their stark natures to defiance of the scepter and feeling vaguely uncomfortable or inadequate around each other. This pair of chapters marks the beginning of a pair of complementary journeys that we think will be summed up by the words of their father. You may be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through both your hearts. You need her as she needs you. Before we move on to discuss other elements of the Sansa chapter, one more thing to consider is whether Sansa was lying to Septimordain to specifically protect Arya or to generally avoid unpleasantness. We don't think the two are mutually exclusive and taken solely from Arya 1, the latter interpretation might seem more accurate. But when we gain Sansa's point of view, it seems pretty clear that there is a protective intent in her lie, which will become all the more poignant when we get to the next Eddar chapter. And while we won't be discussing that today, we will of course address the setup for it. First though, it's of note that Sansa's lady's courtesy shines in this chapter, from her polite defiance of the scepter to pleading with her sister to behave, to the scene with Lord Renly and Sir Barristan in the inn's courtyard. Sansa is in top ladylike form. Because we're in her POV, we see how the arrival of strangers, the terrifying presence of Ilin Payne, and the fierce protective reaction of her gentle direwolf, along with the equally intimidating visage of Sandor Clegane, all combine to make her feel small and scared. She's the centre of attention of members of the court for the first time, although definitely not the last. And her fantasy Prince Joffrey appears to rescue her. 
And it's a combination of the presence of her knight in shining armor, which plays to her love of romance and stories, and the opportunity to interact courteously with Renly and Barristan that gives her the strength to pull herself together, a key trait that we'll see in her again and again. And one little thing we'll point out is that it was Cersei who ordered Joffrey to go to her when she was in danger of crying under the eyes of all the men in the courtyard, perhaps proving that Cersei had quite early on taken the measure of Sansa and knew exactly how to manipulate her, though we do think that ultimately she underestimates the starkness of the girl. So if Sansa showed signs of being overly sensitive in the courtyard of the inn, with the help of her lady's armour and a deliberately invoked trope, she was able to overcome it and regain her normal composure and control. By the end of the chapter, though, these appear to have been utterly shattered by the events that take place at the Trident. For following the arrival of the councillors from King's Landing, Cersei cancels the planned audience with the Stark girls, inadvertently letting Arya off the hook and puts Joffrey in charge of entertaining Sansa. And it's Joffrey who suggests a ride, though it's of note that Sansa replies, I love riding, when moments before, in relation to Arya's activities, she had been thinking how dirty and tiresome it was. Joffrey also suggests that they leave her wolf and his dog behind, which Sansa agrees to reluctantly. Their day is described as one Arya might have had, riding, exploring, having adventures, until they reach the Ruby Ford. Earlier, Arya had told Sansa that she was going to look for rubies. Sansa didn't get the reference, and Arya had to explain it to her. So as soon as Joffrey mentions the Ruby Ford, we should be on alert that trouble is brewing. And while Sansa is feeling nervous, it takes until she is face to face with her sister, playing at swords with the butcher's boy, before she realises what's going on. She's horrified and embarrassed, but makes no move to intervene when Joffrey goes full bully mode, other than warning Arya to stay out of it. But she may as well tell the moon not to rise. The ensuing scene between Joffrey and Micah and Arya sets a great deal in motion. The estrangement of the sisters, Sander Clegane's involvement in both their arcs, heightened tension between Stark and Lannister, Sansa's loss of Lady, representing her Stark identity, and Arya's loss of Nymeria at the same time, and most importantly, Joffrey's malice towards Sansa, which will define her arc for the next two books. Yeah, Joffrey is utterly humiliated by Arya, but in the process, he proves himself to be something of a coward, begging her not to hurt him and threatening to tell his mother. Crucially, not his father, the king. In an act of emotional transference, at the end of the chapter, he directs his rage, pain and loathing at Sansa for the crime of witnessing this scene. So, Sansa has arrived at a crossroads in her journey, where she'll be forced to choose between her family and her future. She'll lose part of her identity when Lady is condemned to death, and her relationship with her sister will suffer untold damage. 
By transferring the blame for Lady's death to Arya, instead of where it clearly lay, with the Queen, Sansa left herself vulnerable to Cersei's manipulation, which would have even graver consequences than anyone could have imagined. At the same time, the overall story negotiates a crossroads of sorts. While Ned could have taken the opportunity to make different choices for himself and his family, and Robert could have stood up to his wife and stood by his hand, Cersei was never going to do anything other than be herself. And certainly Sandor Clegane would be led from that crossroads to a moment that would ultimately confirm his place on Arya's revenge list, while many months later in the same place he would fall off that list. So we think it's completely appropriate for this chapter to take place where it does. And there are some subtle things that we want to point out that we'll call back to later. The Ruby Ford, and more specifically, Robert's battle with Rhaegar and Rhaegar's death, is called out twice. The foundations for establishing Arya's similarities to her Aunt Lyanna lie in this chapter and in Arya 1, as we discussed. The prince and his lady riding on the bank of the trident, a choice between family and future, clear and present danger to a Stark girl. These are all themes or scenes we should remember. Yeah, we should. And we will bring those things back to the table before long. And that wraps up our discussion of Sansa 1 from A Game of Thrones. When we come back, we'll jump forward to another A Game of Thrones chapter. Set several weeks after Sansa's chapter, Catelyn 5 will bring us back to the inn with an entirely new set of conflicts and choices. To lead us in, here are some of Catelyn's thoughts about the crossroads. The crossroads gave her pause. If they turned west from here, it was an easy ride down to Riverrun. The eastern road was wilder and more dangerous, climbing through rocky foothills and thick forests into the Mountains of the Moon, past high passes and deep chasms to the Vale of Arryn and the Stony Fingers beyond. Her path ran north to Winterfell, where her sons and her duty were waiting for her. Catelyn 5 opens with Cat and Roderick Gassell travelling north on the King's Road. Having departed King's Landing a fortnight previously, they're about to arrive at the crossroads. It's raining, a common motif in Cat's Riverlands chapters, and they decide to head for the inn. Cat reveals that she knows the inn and its innkeep, Masha Heddle, well from her travels with her father as a child, but after Lord Jason Malister passes them on the road and fails to recognise her, they make the fateful decision that they can chance the public locale and likely remain anonymous. Like Sansa, Catelyn is at a crossroads in her life. Her husband and two daughters have moved to King's Landing, her three sons remain at Winterfell, Fate finds her on the road north, returning from a covert visit with Ned in the capital following the attack on Bran's life by the Catspaw. 
While in King's Landing, she encountered Peter Baelish, her one-time foster brother, now the realm's master of coin, and an adept player of the political game that swirls in the city. It was Baelish who identified the cat's paw's knife as belonging to Tyrion Lannister, while protesting that Ned and Cat must forget all about it and take no action. And it's under the burden of the knowledge that House Lannister may be behind the death of Jon Arryn, as well as Bran's accident and the ensuing attack on his life. The fear that civil war is in the air once more and that her husband will again be at the centre of it. That Catelyn is making her way north, tasked with keeping her son safe and putting the Northern Lords on a war footing once she arrives. That's right, and when they arrive at the inn, Catelyn considers the crossroads. There were three choices for her. Her father, who was ailing and perhaps in need of warning of the political storm brewing, lay to the west. Her sister, who might hold the key to the mystery Ned was trying to unravel in King's Landing, was to the east. But her sons, and her duty, lay to the north, and that was the road she intended to stay upon. At their meeting in King's Landing, Ned's anxiety over Lannister intentions and Bran's safety had taken centre stage. It had become obvious to the Elder Starks that Bran had some knowledge that made him a target, which danger they thought was hardly over. Ned was more determined than ever to find and place before Robert evidence that confirmed their suspicion that the Lannisters killed John Arryn, a suspicion that Cat had shared with none other than Peter Baelish, who must have been extremely gratified to find his plotting going according to plan. And after casually pointing the finger of suspicion at Tyrion, the Lannister who had been at Winterfell but was not in the city at the moment and was therefore out of Ned's reach for the time being, Littlefinger commenced making himself indispensable to Ned's quest to find proof of Lannister perfidy and bring it before Robert. There seems to be very little likelihood that Baelish expected either Cat or Ned to cross paths with Tyrion Lannister in the immediate future, and therefore he probably thought the accusation might not bear any fruit for some time, if ever. He certainly couldn't have foretold that Tyrion Lannister was heading south on the King's Road, even as he spoke. Nor could Catelyn, who was likely on the road north, even as Tyrion headed south from Winterfell, meaning that not even a well-timed message from Rob to his father about Tyrion's visit with Euron could have reached her ears. And so it was with utter shock that, having taken the risk and feeling that they had successfully avoided recognition, Catelyn heard Tyrion enter the inn's common room as she and Roderick sat down for dinner. And as luck would have it, it was the singer Marillion, seated near Cat, who drew Tyrion's eye towards her and led to his flash of recognition. Even finding her in such an unlikely place, it's clear that Tyrion attempted to be courteous at first, but Cat had just moments to decide what to do. While she certainly could have made up a tale about travelling to Riverrun to see her ailing father, 
Such a story would hardly survive any amount of questioning as to why the hand's wife would be traveling the king's road with only a single aging knight to accompany her. In her anxiety and her suppressed rage over the attacks on her son, a vision of Bran, quote, choking, drowning on his own blood, came to her. And as she made the decision to act, it says... She could hear the muttering, feel the eyes upon her. Catelyn glanced around the room, at the faces of the knights, and sworn swords, and took a deep breath to slow the frantic beating of her heart. Did she dare take the risk? There was no time to think it through. Only the moment and the sound of her own voice ringing in her ears. So, there was no time to think. Catelyn is clearly acting solely on her emotions, anxiety and anger primarily, as she takes this fateful step. Much can and has been said over whether Cat was right or wrong in her decision-making process, and we think the chapter is expressly written to lead readers into this debate. Catelyn at the crossroads goes from being certain of her path to being wholly uncertain and making a decision based on emotion in the spur of the moment. What could go wrong? Well, as satisfying as Catelyn found the sound of drawn swords being levelled at Tyrion Lannister, it's plain in the text that she wasn't acting wholly rationally here. Where not long before she had been thinking of the need to avoid war, her actions at the inn play into a chain of events that would lead to the opening skirmishes of what would become the War of the Five Kings. But while we can say that she acted without thought for consequences, in no way would we say that her actions solely caused the war. As we laid out in our analysis of the War of the Five Kings, the groundwork was being laid for that struggle many months or even years previously by members of House Lannister, though not, it would seem, the Lannister who now found himself caught in Catelyn's net. Yeah, remember that Westerland's troops may have already been mustered at the border of the Riverlands and that Cersei's plot to kill Robert at the Hand's tourney was already in action, brought forward, according to her own point of view in A Feast for Crows, by Ned sniffing around where John Aaron had left off. Cersei also indicates that she had had some sort of plan in place to deal with Stannis and Renly, and critically, all of this preceded Catelyn's unexpected meeting with Tyrion. And of course, one also has to acknowledge that Cat's actions were manipulated in large part, even if unintentionally, by the false information she had been given by Peter Baelish. Nonetheless, Catelyn Stark's seizure of Tyrion Lannister would lead to several events that represented a bringing forward of a number of subtle plans that were in the works by not only Tywin and Cersei Lannister, but others in the capital as well, including Varys's subtle plot to bring a saviour to Westeros once the lion and wolf were set against each other. And as for the immediate consequences of Cat's actions, Jamie's attack on Ned in the streets of King's Landing is perhaps the most serious. 
Leading to Ned's injury and Jory Cassell's death and Jamie's flight from the city, it also presented the opportunity for Cersei to finally rid herself of Robert when he went on an unexpected hunting trip to avoid the awkward situation caused by his hand's wife arresting his own wife's brother and his wife's other brother attacking the hand in retaliation. Yeah, truly awkward, and not the kind of thing Robert was adept at handling. Without a mediating figure like John Arryn at hand, Robert would no doubt have been at a total loss as to what to do. Removing himself from the capital was a critical decision that ultimately led to Ned being outmaneuvered by Cersei and Robert's own death by boar. And, of course, the more obvious consequences would occur in the Vale of Arryn when Catelyn arrived at the Eyrie with her captive in tow. Liza's trial of the dwarf for her husband's murder was the beginning of the reveal of the younger Tully sister's growing paranoia and isolationism. The armies of the Vale might have made all the difference in the long run had they joined the war in the Riverlands, but Lysa simply had no appetite to risk her own and her son's security in support of the family of her birth. But Kat's chapters in the Vale certainly provided an entree to the story for several characters who would go on to have key supporting roles, Brynden Tully and the sellsword Bronn among them, not to mention the introduction of the vain young singer Marillion to the Eyrie. Given all of the above, we think that what's fairly obvious about this particular evocation of the crossroads is the sense of danger or peril. Yeah, we mentioned in the introduction that crossroads are not only frequently associated with change, but are a place that's often felt to be in-between or liminal and thus can be associated with the unknown or danger. Kat's experience at the crossroads certainly led her to a place of peril, an unexpected destination from which there was essentially no return. It may be an oversimplification to say that her arrest of Tyrion led to the War of the Five Kings, but it certainly put Catelyn on a path from which there was no turning back. That's right. And speaking of reaching a point of no turning back, there's probably no parallel to Catelyn's actions more apt than the seizure of Lyanna Stark by Rhaegar Targaryen that many blame for the outbreak of the civil war that came to be known as Robert's Rebellion. But as in the case of the War of the Five Kings, the truth may be more complex. The world of ice and fire history and the fan theory known as Southern Ambitions indicate that there was plotting going on that was unrelated to Rhaegar and Lyanna and that the highly charged quote-unquote kidnapping was merely the spark that set the powder keg that was the reign of Ares II alight. Yeah, and bear this comparison in mind, because it's definitely something we'll be returning to later in the episode. Speaking of returning, there is one more brief scene at the inn in A Game of Thrones. We mentioned earlier that Tyrion finds himself there after the Battle of the Green Fork when Tywin's forced march to relieve Jaime at River Run ended with a messenger reaching them at the crossroads with news of Jaime's defeat and capture at Whispering Wood. The irony of being at the inn again is certainly not lost on Tyrion. In Tyrion 7, 
He's come full circle and is about to embark on a new path, as his father has revealed that he's sending Tyrion to King's Landing to bring Joffrey and Cersei and their rogue counsellors to heal, whilst Tywin remains in the Riverlands directing the campaign of destruction that will be his vengeance on the Riverlands. Tyrion may have escaped the threat of death and be en route to his destiny, but life hasn't been so kind to Masha Heddle. As we mentioned earlier, whether for the crime of hosting Catelyn Stark or for protesting against the Lannister occupation, Tywin seems to have had her hanged in her own inn-yard. Here's the reveal. Finally, he climbed the steps to his cozy garret beneath the bell tower. The ceiling was low, but that was scarcely a drawback for a dwarf. From the window, he could see the gibbet his father had erected in the yard. The innkeep's body turned slowly on its rope whenever the night wind gusted. Her flesh had grown as thin and ragged as Lannister hopes. And the careful reader will also notice that Tyrion seems to be occupying the same chamber that had been given to Cat in Catelyn V. And from this scene, we can now turn the pages forward two entire books, to over a year later, when Arya will find herself back at the crossroads. Here's the scene when she arrives. Outside the inn, on a weathered gibbet, a woman's bones were twisting and rattling at every gust of wind. I know this inn. There hadn't been a gibbet outside the door when she slept here with her sister Sansa under the watchful eye of Septimordain, though. We don't want to go in, Arya decided suddenly. There might be ghosts. In A Storm of Swords, Arya 13 begins by invoking Sansa 1 from A Game of Thrones. Much has changed in Arya's life since she last stood at this particular crossroad, nearly 18 months earlier, and perhaps not wanting to look back at happier times, she conjures the threat of ghosts. But Sandor Clegane is no stranger to ghosts, and they hold no menace for him, especially when a flagon of wine is in the equation. When Arya stayed at the inn with her sister, the entire Stark family was at a crossroads. As we discussed earlier, many things flowed from the events of that chapter, including introducing Sander Glegane, Arya's current companion, to the girls' stories. Now, in a scene that echoes Tyrion Seven in A Game of Thrones, Arya finds herself back at the inn, contemplating Masha Heddle's bones. And if ever a character was at a crossroads, it's Arya in the latter part of A Storm of Swords. After many weeks of travelling with the Brotherhood without banners, making their way circuitously towards Riverrun, she had become the hostage of Sandor Clegane, who also intended to return her to her mother and brother. Only rather than a simple ransom, he also hoped to collect a commission from Rob. But of course, as they approached the twins, the red wedding unfolded and the pair found themselves aimlessly wandering the Riverlands once again, even venturing into the foothills of the Mountains of the Moon. Yeah, Sandor is really at a loss for what to do with Arya. She should be a valuable captive, but her surviving family seem unlikely to recognize her. 
After rejecting traveling to Lysa Aaron in the Vale or Jon Snow at the Wall as both too dangerous, he's decided at last that he'll give Brynton Tully at River Run a try. And so when they approach the inn, Sanders not only seeking wine, but information. Who holds the ruby ford will decide the route they choose from the crossroads. And as they enter the inn, we see one of a series of hints that Arya's relationship to Sandor has evolved somewhat. Her internal thoughts on him change subtly in her last few chapters from A Storm of Swords, partially out of the numbness of loss and being adrift in the world with Sandor, her sole protector, but also arguably due to her having a slightly more nuanced view of him as a human. We shouldn't forget that in their chapters together, he's taken on the role of mentor, laying the foundation for Aya's interpretation of mercy, and also that she, like Sansa, is now in Sandor's debt for, as he sees it, saving her life at the Twins. So here, when he enters the inn and leaves her outside with both horses, it says, Arya would never have a better chance to escape. She could ride off on Craven and take Stranger, too. She chewed her lip. Then she led the horses to the stables and went in after him. And so, say what you will about the reasons behind it, and they are certainly many and complex. In this moment, Arya thinks hard, as evidenced by her tell chewing her lip and consciously chooses to stay with him. While one could make a case for some kind of Stockholm Syndrome, it's also possible that she realises that with him she might finally get somewhere that matters, whether it be River Run or The Wall, as she'd recently been pleading. Gaining intelligence about the Ruby Ford may have decided things for them, but there were other patrons at the inn, and in a sense, they were ghosts. Yeah, they were. Not only did they know Sander Clegane, but they were known to Arya from her past. Polliver and the Tickler are high on Arya's list of names, the former for stealing Needle from her when she was captured with her companions in the Riverlands, and the latter for his gruesome torture of prisoners in the warehouse on the lake and later at Harrenhal. And given the presence of a male innkeep and several girls with the men, this is obviously the incarnation of the inn we mentioned earlier when one of Masha Heddle's nephews attempted to retain the custom from local soldiers by offering them women in addition to wine and ale. At any rate, the gods seem to have given Arya a gift here, and Sandor as well, since the pair quickly give him all the news he was looking for. Yeah, all the news and more, starting with the fact that Gregor has been recalled to King's Landing by Queen Cersei, and that Joffrey, enemy number one on Arya's list, is dead, murdered by the imp, which Arya tries unsuccessfully to summon some satisfaction over. It says... She knew it ought to make her happy, but somehow she still felt empty inside. Joffrey was dead, but if Rob was dead too, what did it matter? So that speaks to Arya's frame of mind we mentioned earlier, being adrift and quite numb from the events of the past few weeks. But more important to Sandor and Arya, 
seems to be the information that Tyrion had an accomplice in his wife, Sansa Stark, who had since escaped the capital. Arya is confused about Sansa, while Sandor seems at once angry at Tyrion, though not for the reason Arya and the others assume, and quite proud of Sansa. Right, and this will be important later. When Sander expresses his anger at the imp, Arya believes that it's over Joffrey's death and thinks, he's one of them, he's just like they are, I should kill him when he sleeps. But then a moment later he says, the little bird flew away, did she? Well, bloody good for her, she shit on the imp's head and flew off. If Arya could have understood the feelings behind the latter statement, perhaps she might have realized why her internal thoughts on Sandor were changing subtly, tugging her away from her long habit of wishing death upon him. And there's more news to be had. Gregor had retaken Harrenhal before he was recalled by Cersei, and Brynden Tully is besieged at Riverrun, meaning that a westward journey might not be the wisest move. The fact that Sansa Stark's sister is to be wed to Roos Bolton's bastard seems inexplicably amusing to Sandor, and his line of questioning then turns to Saltpans, inquiring about shipping news before the tickler suggests that perhaps Gregor would like his brother to return to Harrenhal with them. And at this suggestion that Sandor be taken, things start happening very quickly. The ensuing fight leaves Sandor badly wounded and Polliver dead. It's Arya who stepped up to kill the tickler as he threatened the wounded Sandor, perhaps repaying her debt to him, and then gives the gift of mercy to the squire, having wounded him during the fighting. And there's a turning point here for Arya, who has killed a number of people so far on her journey, and even called for the assassination of a couple people on her revenge list. But the tickler is the first person from her list that Aya kills herself. And she is so full of rage as she stabs the man repeatedly, shouting the questions he would ask as he tortured people, that Sandor has to pull her off the body. Here's the passage. Is there gold hidden in the village? She shouted as she drove the blade up through his back. Is there silver? Gems? She stabbed twice more. Is there food? Where is Lord Berwick? She was on top of him by then, still stabbing. Where did he go? How many men were with him? How many knights? How many bowmen? How many? How many? How many? How many? How many? How many? Is there gold in the village? This scene is so violent and visceral that even with everything she's gone through in the last year or more of her life, it's one of the most provocative moments of her arc until we get to the Mercy chapter in The Winds of Winter. As such, it's truly a crossroad for Arya, although it's only one of several in this chapter. In fact, one could make the case that the overarching theme of this chapter is the metaphorical crossroads that are navigated by the point-of-view character and her companion. Isandor decides that Gregor's men must hold the Ruby Ford, and that staying at the crossroads would be dangerous. In fact, as we said, heading west in general now seems to be out of the question, and following the fight, after giving the gift of mercy to the wounded squire, 
the pair head east towards salt pans, with Sandor now planning to take ship to the Vale, but keeping off the road to avoid more unplanned reunions. And as we said, Sandor's wounds from the fight are quite serious, and when they stop, Arya helps him to get bandaged up as best they can. Later that night, she finds herself leaving him out of her prayers. It says... She'd left his name out, too, she realized. Why had she done that? She tried to think of Micah, but it was hard to remember what he'd looked like. She hadn't known him long. All he ever did was play at swords with me. The Hound, she whispered, and Valar Morghulis. Maybe he'd be dead by morning. So perhaps the implication is that as she has become familiar with Sandor... Her memories of Micah have faded. This could be a result of seeing Sandor as a human rather than the monster that is the Hound, and certainly her thoughts about him seem to uphold that. This dichotomy is somewhat evident throughout their chapters together and is a major factor in the Gravedigger theory, as we discussed in our Sandor Clegane episode. So the hound is no longer in her prayers, possibly because she sees the inevitability of his death. Valor Mogulis, she thinks, when she realizes she left him out. Or perhaps because she no longer thinks him worthy of her brand of mercy. Remember that mercy for Arya implies death, so perhaps a hint of compassion snuck in there at the end. Or perhaps on some level, her uncertainty was impacted by the northern philosophy she was raised with. We hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. As she's taken the execution of her list into her own hands in this chapter, that would certainly seem to be the implication. At any rate, when Sandor's infections from the wounds worsen and the end finally seems at hand, Aya is unable to kill him, though she has promised him death dozens of times and has had a long internal debate over her reasons for killing him. Sandor begs her to do it. Here's the passage. Don't lie, he growled. I hate liars. I hate gutless frauds even worse. Go on, do it. When Aya did not move, he said, I killed your butcher's boy. I cut him near in half and laughed about it after. He made a queer sound and it took her a moment to realise he was sobbing. And the little bird, your pretty sister, I stood there in my white cloak and let them beat her. I took the bloody song, she never gave it. I meant to take her too. I should have. I should have fucked her bloody and ripped her heart out before leaving her for that dwarf. A spasm of pain twisted his face. Do you mean to make me beg, bitch? Do it, the gift of mercy. Avenge your little Michael. But Sanders attempts to bait her into a killing rage fail, and she tells him, 
You don't deserve the gift of mercy, perhaps unconsciously echoing her father's words about executions. And, as if in confirmation of her northern identity, as she leaves him, her thoughts turn to the relation of wolves and dogs, something Sander had joked about previously. Maybe some real wolves will find you. Maybe they'll smell you when the sun goes down. Then he would learn what wolves did to dogs. So, Arya's feelings about the Hound have become increasingly complex, and perhaps critically, since we know that in the end the real wolves don't find him, we also know that she's been dreaming of and likely warging Nymeria almost nightly. We do have to wonder about intent versus bravado in that parting thought. By the end of this chapter, we really can't be sure if he doesn't deserve mercy because she no longer wants to kill him or if she merely wants to prolong his suffering. Nor can we say the options are mutually exclusive, since what she's learned from close contact with Sandor seems to be at odds with what she thought she knew previously, it would be small wonder if she were experiencing some amount of cognitive dissonance here. What we can say is that this chapter highlights her youth by showing her in moments of frustration, ungoverned rage, and indecision, not to mention confusion over what she hears about politics and plots, and her misunderstanding of Sandor's actions and reactions. But after she takes the decision to leave Sander behind, she's heading steadily towards a new life where her understanding of herself will continue to be challenged while her path will move her rapidly along the one she sets herself upon at the inn, taking vengeance on the people from her list into her own hands. The concept of mercy is a gift which comes up with the squire at the inn and again with Sandor can be directly related to the gift Aya will learn about at the House of Black and White in Bravos. At times, the gift of the faceless men is a punishment, while at other times, it is a release. The kindly man will caution her. It is not for you to say who shall live and who shall die. That gift belongs to him of many faces. This lesson contrasts with her actions throughout her arc and also very strongly with her northern upbringing. In the case of Sandra Clegane, Arya may have shown some foreshadowing of her future arc when she'll struggle with the creed of the faceless men versus her own natural impulses. As the chapter began with a callback to Sansa One, where the Hound's arc became entangled with that of both sisters, and he earned his place on Aya's list, it's fitting that the Hound exits her life in more or less the same place. Aya gives Sandor two reasons why she wouldn't give him mercy as she leaves. You shouldn't have hit me with an axe, she said. You should have saved my mother. She turned her horse and rode away from him and never looked back once. But the thing about those two reasons is that both are related to him saving her life at the twins. 
He's already pointed out that had she run into the castle as she was trying to do, she almost certainly would have ended up dead. He couldn't save her mother against an entire army, but he did what he could for Arya, whatever his reasons. So in the end, she gives him the gift of not killing him, perhaps because, according to her northern sensibilities, he doesn't deserve to die. And so, as she heads away from the crossroads towards salt pans and a new life, it says she never looked back. As a sign that she has taken a new path and is setting off to the unknown, it's the ultimate crossroads metaphor, and we wonder how much she may have been channeling her independent spirited aunt in that moment. The chapter actually ends with her seeking and gaining passage to Bravos aboard the Titan's daughter, using the coin Jacques and Hagar had given her all those months ago at Harrenhal. And Sandor is also at a crossroads, and here's where we can call upon the metatextual association of crossroads with death, the other world, and necromancy that we mentioned in the first segment. For here, at the end of this chapter, as Arya rides away towards salt pans, is the origin of the the hound is dead, Sandor Clegane is at rest aspect of the gravedigger theory. Yeah, and if we take that theory as highly likely, then some very clever semantic and spiritual necromancy takes place in Sandor's arc of Page as a result of the action of this chapter. And that provides us with an excellent segue to the final chapter we're going to analyse here, since it's in Brienne's POV in A Feast for Crows that we next have news of Sandor Clegane, and incidentally also unknowingly see the ship that is carrying Aya to Bravos. Yeah, in her second chapter in A Feast for Crows, Brienne actually sees the Titan's daughter sailing for Bravos. Brienne's arc in Feast brings her back to the Riverlands, where her wanderings echo those of Sander and Arya from A Storm of Swords. She's looking for something that never seems to get any closer, although she does gain some interesting insight into Sander Clegane. When her path finally brings her to the inn at the crossroads, she's keenly aware of the choices that lay before her. Here's a passage to lead us into the discussion. They had come to the crossroads, quite literally, the place where the King's Road, the River Road, and the High Road all came together. The high road would take them east through the mountains to the Vale of Arran, where Lady Sansa's aunt had ruled until her death. West ran the river road, which followed the course of the Red Fork to Riverrun and Sansa's great-uncle, who was besieged but still alive. Or they could ride the King's Road north, past the Twins and through the Neck with its bogs and marshes. If she could find a way past Moat Caelan and whoever held it now, the King's Road would bring them all the way to Winterfell. Or I could take the King's Road south. I could slink back to King's Landing, confess my failure to Sir Jamie, give him back his sword, and find a ship to carry me home to Tarth, as the elder brother urged. Brienne Seven in A Feast for Crows finds Brienne continuing her journey in the Riverlands 
in the company of her squire Podrick Payne, Sir Hylehunt and Septon Meribald. The group have recently left the Quiet Isle where Brienne had learned that Arya Stark was last seen heading to Saltpans mere days before the brutal raid by outlaws that left the town in ashes and many of its inhabitants slaughtered. And while the raid had been carried out by a man wearing Sandor Clegane's distinctive hound's head helmet, leading to the atrocities being laid at his door, the elder brother of the Quiet Isle had also been able to fill in some details of Sandor's story for Brienne, telling her that the hound had died at the Trident, after which his helmet was appropriated by some outlaw from the grave the elder brother himself had left it atop. But while at the Quiet Isle, Brienne also witnessed a very large grave digger with a limp, and a surly black destrier, which is, of course, the root of the fan theory that Sandor Clegane lives, while his persona, the Hound, has been laid to rest beside the trident where Arya left him. And it's into the shattered landscape of the Eastern Riverlands that Brienne continues her journey in this chapter. Unable to find shelter at Saltpans, the group had continued on toward the crossroads and the inn, which was known to Septon Meribald. As they approach the crossroads, they begin to encounter the corpses of hanged men in the trees. In the last mile, they saw a dozen or more dead men, giving the road the feeling of a way of the dead, perhaps an approach to the gateway to the underworld. Given some of the metatextual crossroads associations we discussed earlier, their association with the underworld and as a burial place for criminals, suicides, and other undeserving souls, it's hardly surprising to find this theme here in this chapter. Yeah, these hanged men are outlaws and broken men, and so they really fit that bill. And given what happens when they arrive at the inn, it's completely on point to say that Brienne is transitioning to a new path in this chapter, perhaps the most significant crossroad theme we've seen yet in these analyses. As they travel in order to take their minds off the procession of corpses, Septon Maribald embarks on history of the inn to which they're heading. We've already drawn liberally upon his lesson in our segment on the inn itself. We can glean from his stories that the male innkeep from the time of Sandor and Arya's visit has also been killed, and that two of Masha Heddle's nieces have reopened the place. And once at the inn, it's clear that it's now being operated as an orphanage of sorts, and it's overrun with motherless children. And if the hanged men along the approach from the east isn't enough of a callback to Masha Heddle's dangling corpse at the beginning of Aya 13 in the Storm of Swords, as they enter the inn yard, Brienne is greeted with a ghost. Yeah, recall that Arya expressed her fear of ghosts when she arrived at the inn with Sandor. In this case, Brienne is shocked when she turns and sees Renly. But of course, it turns out to be Gendry, bastard son of Robert, who is the spitten image of a young Renly, himself said to be the image of young Robert. Gendry is his usual surly self and is less than welcoming, but the younger Heddle sister sees that the visitors have food and coin, two things they sorely need with all those children to feed. So Gendry's presence, and a stable full of horses, makes it evident, to the reader anyway, that the inn is on some level being operated by the Brotherhood Without Banners, which Brienne and her party remain unaware of for the time being. 
Brienne is busy internally debating her choices and is thoroughly undecided. She's had no leads on which direction Sansa might have taken and is now convinced that Arya perished in the raid on Saltpans. And after a lively meal with the children, she seeks out Gedry in his forge, is pressing him for details about his background, and is about to tell him how much he resembles the dead king and what that might mean when she hears horses and men coming. Gendry seems to think it's friends, but when Brienne gets a glimpse of the riders, she's struck with fear. It says she saw seven riders enter the yard, and the last one was, quote, massive and hulking, as big as two of the others. His face was broad and hairless, maggot white, his round cheeks covered with weeping sores. Recognising Biter and realising that his companions will be some of the most beastly men in the Seven Kingdoms, she warns Gendry, and when a moment later she recognises the leader to be a man wearing Sandor Clegane's helm, she has a pretty good idea who it is. Time hasn't made Rorge any mellower or led him to forget the Maid of Tarth. The theme of Brienne settling her scores with the Brave Companions, begun in her chapter at the Whispers, continues, and here we have yet another callback to the Arya chapter as well. The fight between Brienne and Rorge, and then Biter, bears a striking similarity to Sanders' fight with Polliver and the Tickler. In Sanders' case, he has a fairly evenly matched sword fight with Polliver, whom he kills, but is then in real danger of being cut down by the Tickler until Arya steps up from behind to stab him in the back. And in Brienne's case, she has a real sword battle with Rouge, who she is able to defeat by virtue of her training, her patience, and her superior weapon. But she is utterly undone by the vicious attack of Biter, and the description of the wounds she suffers at his hands and teeth is brutal. But very much like Sandor and Arya with the Tickler, Brienne is saved when Gendry steps in from behind to stab Biter with his spear. Here's a passage from the scene. Brienne's chest was burning and the storm was behind her eyes, blinding her. Bones ground against each other inside of her. Biter's mouth gaped open, impossibly wide. She saw his teeth, yellow and crooked, filed into points. When they closed on the soft meat of her cheek, she hardly felt it. She could feel herself spiraling down into the dark. I cannot die yet, she told herself. There's something I still need to do. Biter's mouth tore free, full of blood and flesh. He spat, grinned, and sank his pointed teeth into her flesh again. This time he chewed and swallowed. He's eating me, she realized. But she had no strength left to fight him any longer. She felt as if she were floating above herself, watching the horror as if it were happening to some other woman, to some stupid girl who thought she was a knight. It will be finished soon, she told herself. Then it will not matter if he eats me. Biter threw back his head and opened his mouth again, yowling, and stuck his tongue out at her. It was sharply pointed, dripping blood, longer than any tongue should be, sliding from his mouth out and out and out, red and wet and glistening. It made a hideous sight, obscene, His tongue is a foot long, Brienne thought, just before the darkness took her. Why, it looks almost like a sword. Yes, so a really clear parallel there to Sandor, Arya, and the Tickler. 
And the Hound's helmet is actually even present in both fights. And one thing of note is that although Brienne thinks what she perceives to be Biter's tongue looks like a sword, it's in the next chapter that Jane Heddell tells her it was Gendry with a spear that saved her. Given that's a commonly mistaken detail among fans, we think it's worth pointing out that this is what the unreliable POV means to the narrative. Sometimes we have to deal with thoughts or perceptions that are unreliable even if they are understandable. Since Brienne 7 ends with her still at the crossroads, it's worth looking ahead to her next chapter. In Brienne 8, there's a fever dream that's essentially a procession of the dead, very similar to Theon's dream from A Clash of Kings, but also highly evocative of Ned's dream of the Tower of Joy from A Game of Thrones. On the most symbolic level, Brienne seems to be approaching the underworld. There's even a river crossing, which is highly evocative of an underworld journey. In Greek mythology, it's the river Styx that marks the border between the realm of the living and the underworld, known as Hades. The ferryman Charon was responsible for bringing dead souls across. Charon is reimagined in Dante's Inferno as the psychopomp or spiritual guide, who shepherds souls, even those who are unwilling, across the river Acheron to hell with its nine circles. So perhaps Gendry functions here as Brienne's psychopomp, appearing to her as a ghost out of her past and then accompanying her to the river, across which is the literal underground location of the Brotherhood Without Banners that she's eventually brought to. In the midst of her feverish dreaming, she's aware of the journey on some level, and the description of the river crossing is appropriately atmospheric. She dreamed that she was lying in a boat, her head pillowed on someone's lap, they were shadows all around them, hooded men in mail and leather, paddling them across a foggy river with muffled oars. So there's something almost Arthurian about the description of that journey, with Long Jane Heddle supporting Brienne in the boat, standing in for Morgan Le Fay, supporting Arthur en route to the island of Avalon, and the fog lending a mystical and even distinctly underworld feel. Worth noting is that just before taking the ferry across the river in Dante's tale, souls would be greeted with the message, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And that's a very fitting analogue with a sentiment that will be expressed to Brienne by Thoris of Mere in this chapter. I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms but do not look for them here. When men must live like rats, in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity. So, as in Dante's Inferno, things like mercy, forgiveness, pity, and hope are notably absent in Lady Stoneheart's lair. Brienne's experience at the crossroads has led her to a near-death experience, followed by a virtual underworld experience. Given what we know about what happens to her next, her meeting with Lady Stoneheart, the choice between sword and noose, her subsequent meeting with Jamie Lannister, and what many of us guess might be coming next for the pair of them, we can't think of any character arc that more fittingly embodies the themes of the crossroads than Brienne over the course of her Feast for Crows chapters. 
In the course of our analyses, The Crossroads has shown us girls' lives in transition, the power a single decision can have upon affairs of the realm, and the unexpected turn a life can take when a chance meeting leads to a new path. We've seen strong themes of change, choice and death combined with a more subtle undercurrent of adventure and new beginnings. In our next segment, we're going to break away from the main series and journey into the past to an event that shook the realm and without any doubt embodies every one of those themes, as we'll endeavour to describe. With the coming of the new year, the Crown Prince had taken to the road with half a dozen of his closest friends and confidants on a journey that would ultimately lead him back to the Riverlands. Not ten leagues from Harrenhal, Rhaegar fell upon Lyanna Stark of Winterfell and carried her off, lighting a fire that would consume his house and kin and all those he loved and half the realm besides. With the passage we just heard, the world of ice and fire gave us our first glimpse of what actually happened when Rhaegar Targaryen carried off Lyanna Stark in the Riverlands, and more critically, a hint at where the event took place. We're going to talk through our theory about how that might have happened, which will be familiar to any of you who've heard our R plus L equals J episode from 2014. But first, we want to establish a few things about locations in the Riverlands. Yeah, the passage references Harrenhal, as the tourney there had been the topic of discussion in the first part of the chapter. So, as the story goes, Rhaegar left Dragonstone after the birth of his son Aegon and returned to the Riverlands. There, not ten leagues from Harrenhal, he quote, fell upon Lyanna Stark. It's worth noting that an earlier version of the text had the passage as Rhaegar would once again come face to face with Lyanna Stark of Winterfell and with her light of fire that would consume his house and kin and all those he loved. So it seems like the wording was changed a bit for the version of the book most of us have, and that's pretty understandable since the alternate wording made that meeting sound much more like an elopement than a kidnapping, which of course is at odds with Robert Baratheon's stated understanding of events, and remember the world book was originally being written for Robert by Maester Yandel. It's therefore plain to see why this edit would have been made. Yeah, not to mention that George may have still been trying to obscure some details from us readers, but it's an interesting glimpse into the writing and editing process, we think. And so now getting back to the location. Not ten leagues from Harrenhal would seem to be any place in any direction within about a day's ride of Harrenhal, as estimates for the distance a small mounted group can cover per day range from about seven to ten leagues. Okay, and to get a sense of what that radius might be, we can turn to maps of the Riverlands, references from the text and the word of the author. But the published maps come with a very rough scale, and attempts to work it out using known distances, like the length of the wall, for instance, can often lead us astray. 
In general, textual references can be equally problematic, although we do have a few promising ones in this instance that don't seem to conflict with each other that we will be looking at. Well, we're going to start by referencing George's statement in an interview in 2007, where he said, I did leave the scale out of the maps on purpose, because I didn't want people with their rulers writing me obsessive compulsive letters saying, you said it would take five days, but I've measured it and it should only take three days. I still get these letters, despite my best efforts to be vague, but I don't want to get bogged down in that type of detail. And this follows advice that he gave to a fan by email in 2002. The reason I'm never specific about dates and distances is precisely so that people won't sit down and do this sort of thing. My suggestion would be to put away the ruler and the stopwatch and just enjoy the story. And similar comments regarding the epic scale of Westeros were made in 2005, as reported by a fan. He deliberately does not make a map to scale because he doesn't want people writing saying, hey, it's impossible for so-and-so to go so far in such-and-such a time. Okay, so it's pretty clear George doesn't want us going crazy with trying to break down these details. So we're not even going to try with the true specifics. We'll just mention a few basic texture references and then move on to ideas that relate to the story and its themes. In A Game of Thrones, when Catelyn is at the Crossroads Inn, she thinks that Riverrun is, quote, an easy ride westwards on the river road. Let's assume a few days, give or take, with the Inn of the Kneeling Man roughly the halfway point. Without even considering anything like the scale, we can easily see that Harrenhal is much closer to the crossroads than Riverrun, or even the proposed halfway mark of the so-called easy ride. Then in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion tells a worried Cersei why their father is remaining with his army at Harrenhal. Harrenhal is close enough to the fords of the Trident so that Roose Bolton cannot bring the northern foot across to join with the young wolf's horse. Stark cannot march on King's Landing without taking Harrenhal first, and even with Bolton, he's not strong enough to do that. So Tywin's army being at Harrenhal is close enough to the Trident to keep Bolton pinned on the other side. So let's assume that distance is no more than a day or so's march. If it was more than that, given Cat's observations on the distance, even an army moving more slowly than a small group should be able to dash down the River Road and meet up with Rob Stark from Riverrun before Tywin could catch them up from Harrenhal. And finally, there's the Arya chapter, where they find Polliver and the Tickler, who are stationed at Harrenhal, drinking at the inn. The two soldiers have made the journey with their squire to make a man of him, likely not something they'd undertake if the distance was too onerous. We'd speculate maybe a day or less, which, given the close proximity of the inn and the trident, is in keeping with Tyrion's assertion to Cersei. All of which is to say that it's entirely in keeping with the evidence of the text, we think, and without regard for any scale that might have been imposed on maps of Westeros by anyone other than the author, who admittedly isn't very bothered with precise scale and distance, that the crossroads can be reasonably considered not ten leagues from Harrenhal. And based on information from the books, it seems like at the time Rhaegar found her, Lyanna might have been on her way to Riverrun for her brother's upcoming wedding when the 
kidnapping occurred. Lord Rickard appears to have been en route from Winterfell south, and Brandon had left Riveron on an errand, which may have been to meet his sister and return with her to the Tully home. So, fans have long speculated that Lyanna may have been staying on at Harrenhal after the tourney, which seems logical, given the reference to it in that world book chapter. Now, there are obviously any number of places, much of it open roads or countryside, that lie within the radius of ten leagues from Harrenhal. The Isle of Faces, a locale that some speculate may have significance to the RLJ narrative, lies well within that area as well. And while we can't rule out any possibilities, today we're talking about the end of the crossroads. Yeah, and today we've discussed the crossroads as a symbol of choices, meetings, and fateful decisions, change, adventure, and even death. Interestingly enough, as we mentioned, the Inn at the Crossroads is the site of another high-profile kidnapping, Cat's Seizure of Tyrion. Arguably, that fateful decision also led to open hostilities in Westeros, and in that case, we had onlookers from the inn who rushed to tell the family of the victim what had happened. So, we've speculated that Lyanna, en route to Riverrun, made her way up the King's Road from Harrenhal to the crossroads, perhaps there to meet her brother Brandon, who, as we said, had departed Riverrun on an errand. And there she crossed paths once again with Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, who, according to the world book, just happened to be passing by with six of his closest pals when he fell upon her and carried her away. Uh, not exactly. We don't think the world book is quite that spot on. Among fans, some do believe that Rhaegar did kidnap Lyanna Stark, absconding with her perhaps to fulfil a prophecy. Others think Lyanna may have gone willingly to escape her proposed marriage to Robert, or that they fell in love at the tourney and planned an elopement. Amongst a plethora of theories, there isn't really a huge consensus on what exactly happened, or even whether Rhaegar was a villain or a hero here, in fact just the opposite. Well, George has indicated that more information will come out about the circumstances of this supposed kidnapping, and we certainly do look forward to that. But in the meantime, the idea that we favored most is that of a rescue. In Arthurian legend, which we know has been a huge influence of George's, there is one branch that tells of Queen Guinevere being sentenced to death for her crime against the king. In the legend, her crime is adultery, but significantly, since she's the queen, that is considered a crime against the crown, treason. As such, the queen was sentenced to burn, but Sir Lancelot arrived at the last minute and carried her away to safety at his castle, which is called Joyous Guard. Okay, so if we consider the parallels between Rhaegar and Lancelot, the fact that Ares' favourite method of punishment was burning... His rage at the Knight of the Laughing Tree and Lyanna's likely involvement in that charade. And that the name Joyous Guard is very similar to the Tower of Joy, I'm sure you'll agree. Then the pieces really seem to click. A king, a crime, a punishment by fire and a rescue by a knight. So what if the famous kidnapping was really a rescue? What if Rhaegar 
intercepted Liana as she was about to be seized by royal soldiers. And so imagine the scene of Goldcloak sent to the Riverlands to bring Lyanna Stark back to King's Landing to face the King's justice. We've actually seen something similar in an Arya chapter in A Clash of Kings when the Goldcloaks came looking for Gendry. If we consider the possibility that Rhaegar caught wind of this plan and was indeed on hand to rescue the Lord of Winterfell's daughter from his father's madness, and that there may have even been a fight, Brandon Stark might have heard a story from witnesses about knights with swords seizing his sister and making off with her. This could be the explanation for Brandon's headlong rush to King's Landing. In fact, given that we now know that Rhaegar had six companions when he went into the Riverlands, but only Dane and Went disappeared into the south with him and Lyanna, it's possible that Brandon actually pursued the wrong group of four back to King's Landing. One thing seems clear is that the seeds of the event seem to have been sown at the tourney of Harrenhal. If we take it as fact that Lyanna Stark was the Knight of the Laughing Tree, then the story of Ares's paranoia about the Mystery Knight becomes highly significant. Here's a passage from the World Book. King Ares II was not a man to take any joy in mysteries, however. His grace became convinced that the tree on the Mystery Knight's shield was laughing at him. He commanded his own knights to defeat the Knight of the Laughing Tree when the jousts resumed the next morning, so that he might be unmasked and his perfidy exposed for all to see. But the Mystery Knight vanished during the night, never to be seen again. This too the king took ill, certain that someone close to him had given warning to this traitor who will not show his face. So, given his mounting paranoid delusions, it seems very unlikely in the wake of the tourney of Harrenhal that the Mad King would simply let go of his rage over the Night of the Laughing Tree, especially if people were whispering in his ear. We've speculated that perhaps Rhaegar unmasked Lyanna off-page, then honored her as queen of love and beauty in a subtle nod to the courage and chivalry she showed by standing up for Howland Reed. It's possible he thought he was protecting her from his father, but what if his actions weren't so subtle? As the world of ice and fire tells us, when the triumphant prince of Dragonstone named Lyanna Stark, daughter of the Lord of Winterfell, the queen of love and beauty, placing a garland of blue roses in her lap with the tip of his lance, the Lickspittle lords gathered around the king declared that further proof of his perfidy. It could only have been meant to win the allegiance of Winterfell to Prince Rhaegar's cause, Simon Staunton suggested to the king. Besides seemingly reinforcing the king's paranoia about his son and the plotting surrounding him, what if someone around Ares was able to put all the pieces together? Or what if someone told him? Remember Ariohotar's words to Ariane in A Feast for Crows. Someone told. Someone always tells. However it might have happened, if we assume for a moment that the Mad King did discover the identity of the Knight of the Laughing Tree, what would he do? Isn't it likely that he would want to bring her to justice? Yeah, and since his justice was well known to be fire, 
If Rhaegar had word from King's Landing that his father intended to seize the daughter of Lord Rickard Stark, this could explain the suddenness of his actions. We might also have an explanation of why Lord Rickard doesn't appear to have demanded his daughter back when he arrived in King's Landing, if we consider that he might have been notified by Rhaegar, and at that point he was simply trying to prevent hostilities from breaking out and mitigate the actions of his eldest son, who apparently stormed into the Red Keep, calling for Rhaegar to come out and die. Well, it's plain that Rhaegar would have known full well that his father seizing the daughter of one Lord Paramount, who was betrothed to another, and soon to be related by marriage to a third, could mean open war in the Seven Kingdoms. The obvious plotting and factions alluded to in The World of Ice and Fire would have made the political situation in Westeros a powder keg. Yeah, and remember that Rhaegar would say to Jaime before the Battle of the Trident, When this battle's done, I mean to call a council. Changes will be made. I meant to do it long ago, but it does no good to speak of roads not taken. He may have been admitting that he had lost control of the reins of the plot, but would take them up in earnest once again after he won the battle to come. In other words, Rhaegar may have been trying to stop his father's downward spiral, spirit the girl to safety in secret, and then deal with his father by calling a great council, but was unprepared for the violence of the reactions of both his father and the rebellious lords. Most importantly, he might not have reckoned with Brandon Stark's actions. By the time Rhaegar got Lyanna to safety and had time to hear the news from King's Landing, it was likely already too late. Brandon and Rickard may have been dead and his father calling for Ned's and Robert's heads. Ares would have been furious with his son and his king's guards, at least two and possibly more of whom had accompanied Rhaegar on his mission as well. For some months, he may have feared for his own life. Yeah, if ever a situation escalated quickly out of control, this is it. The murder of Lord Stark and his heir was hardly a situation that could be alleviated easily or by diplomacy, especially in the political climate that existed late in Ares's reign. We mentioned at the end of the last segment how the crossroads has shown us the power of a single decision upon the affairs of the realm, and the unexpected turn a life can take when a chance meeting leads to a new path. And we think nothing embodies this more than Rhaegar's abduction of Lyanna Stark. As the world book has it, his actions lit a fire that would, quote, consume his house and kin and all those he loved and half the realm besides. And we really like the metaphor of the spark, since, as in the case of Catelyn and Tyrion, Rhaegar and Lyanna can't really be considered in a vacuum. In other words, in both cases, there were events, actions, and a political climate leading up to a single event that led to that being a flashpoint. Meaning, we really can't place the blame squarely on Catelyn's or Rhaegar's shoulders, although at a glance it would appear that both made a choice that set events in motion that would lead to outright war. But how fitting if both these events took place at the crossroads, a place where we've seen pivotal themes of transition, choice, and even death, at the same time combined with adventure and new beginnings. In the case of Rhaegar and Lyanna, we do think we hit upon 
all of the major themes. Even death would come for both of them before too long, and Rhaegar's would occur very close to the inn, as related in that first Sansa chapter we looked at. Lyanna's choices may have been made back at the tourney, where she unknowingly set wheels in motion that would lead to war and tragedy, when she impulsively decided to defend her friend from petty bullying. In our final segment, we're going to talk themes and connective tissue across all the characters we've discussed today. We'll also round up a few smaller details, talk about who we might see at the crossroads next, and how we might get that reveal of what happened to Lyanna Stark in the Riverlands. But first, here's an advert for everyone's favorite inn. Planning your next excursion into the Riverlands? Head into King's Landing from the north or to the Vale from Riveron? Need a public place to meet up with your crush? Why not consider the Inn at the Crossroads? Formerly known as the Two Crowns or the Bell Ringer and more recently as the Clanking Dragon, but most of our local patrons now simply call us the Old Inn. We keep a fine table and offer the best ales and wines and our honey cakes are beyond compare. Uh, don't mind the gibbet in the courtyard or the orphans in the attic. Our beds are free of lice and our hearth is always welcoming. Next time you find yourself on the King's Road, don't forget to check out the Inn at the Crossroads. So, we begin this episode with a metatextual discussion about the themes represented by the Crossroads in literature. Throughout our analyses, we've seen these themes play out in significant ways in the arcs of the four characters who have chapters set at the Crossroads. Change, transition, choice, and death have all played major roles. What's interesting in light of the theory we just presented is the thematic and narrative connections that can be drawn between the four point-of-view characters and Lyanna Stark. Here we find it fascinating that these four female characters are placed in this locale to experience major events of change and transition. And we wondered about connectivity between the four and Lyanna. We mentioned some points of possible intersection during the analyses, as in the situation in Sansa's chapter that played out on the banks of the Trident, Catelyn's seizure of Tyrion, Arya's choice of a new path, and Brienne's fever dream recalling Ned's dream of a certain tower in Dawn. And as for more overt connections, Arya and Sansa, and even Catelyn, have obvious familial associations with Lyanna. Brienne, the warrior maid, embodies the role of female knight that Lyanna seems to have assumed as Knight of the Laughing Tree. The connections between Arya and Lyanna are even deeper with their noted resemblance, both physically and in temperament. And as we mentioned in the analyses, some of the foundation for that reveal takes place in Sansa 1. We can also draw a connection between Sansa's love of stories and singers and Lyanna's tears when Rhaegar sang a sad song at the tourney of Harrenhal. Catelyn's connection is clearly more that of a contemporary, but there's also the more subtle fact of her refusal to stand in Lyanna's place for Jon Snow that looms large in her story. So we do think it's intentional of George to use these specific characters to develop some of these themes of choice and transition, and their association with this place is no accident and, in our opinion, strongly supports the rescue theory. 
Should we arrive at a reveal of Leanna's story, we expect that he'll use similar techniques to present it. But how would this reveal happen? Well, an eyewitness coming forward or a vision seen through the eyes of a weirwood tree seem like the two most probable options. And given the history of the inn and the fact that it's specified that the place is no stranger to highborn patrons, we think it's perfectly logical to think Liana would have sought to stay there if she was travelling on to Riverrun, as she perhaps had done on her way south, and we see the Stark family doing in A Game of Thrones. And given Kat's childhood memories of Masha Heddle, the innkeeper, we want to point out that if the theory is correct, Masha might have witnessed the kidnapping. Not that she could ever report on it now, the poor woman, but it would certainly be no small irony if she was faced with such a similar situation when Catelyn and Tyrion entered her in. Perhaps the word of an eyewitness like Masha, given to a character who's still relevant to the story, someone like Jane Heddle, her niece, or some as yet unidentified character, could be part of the reveal. Well, speaking of other characters, there's even the Lem Lemon Cloak option. If he has been in the Riverlands for many years, or has a secret identity as we've speculated, he could function as a witness to part of the tale, especially if he was once connected with Rhaegar Targaryen. So there are a couple of ideas for witnesses. As for the Weirwood Vision, which would obviously come via Bran Stark, we're going to turn our eyes a little south towards the Isle of Faces in the God's Eye, back in the vicinity of Harrenhal. As we mentioned, fans have long speculated that the Isle of Faces will play a role in the story of Rhaegar and Lyanna. George said in 1999, the Green Man and the Isle of Faces will come to the fore in later books. Given the description of the Isle and its many weirwoods that were specifically given faces so that the old gods could bear witness to the pact between the Children of the Forest and the First Men, and its proximity to the now known locale for Lyanna's disappearance, we think we can expect it to be connected to Bran or Lyanna or both. The Isle of Faces is known to be populated by the mysterious Green Men, an order that was created to tend to the Weirwoods in the south after the pact was signed. They seem to have survived the Andal invasion, as Adam Valerian is said to have gone to the Isle to take counsel with them during the Dance of the Dragons, and more recently, Howland Reed seems to have visited there prior to attending the tourney of Harrenhal. And Rhaegar, being a scholar of sorts, might lead him to want to take counsel with the Order as well. One of the most compelling fan theories for us on a possible marriage ceremony between Rhaegar and Lyanna is that such a ceremony may have taken place in front of a weirwood tree in the Old Gods, making a reveal more likely, and as such, the Isle of Faces seems like a very credible location. Yes, it is. And so... Where do we see the crossroads again in the main story? Our best guess is in Brienne's POV, perhaps even her very next one. Last seen riding up to Jaime Lannister and begging him to come with her to help save one of the Stark girls, speculation is that she's leading him to Lady Stoneheart's Brotherhood Without Banners. The inn, currently being controlled by the BWB, could certainly play a part in that story. 
And maybe that's even where Lem Lemoncloak, longtime Brotherhood Without Banners member, comes into it. We have lots of thoughts about Lem and how he might be important to the narrative going forward. And if you're unfamiliar with our theory on his secret identity or just want a refresher, then do check out our BWD episode, which is episode number nine. Anyway, a role in the reveal of R plus L equals J is one of the more significant ideas we have for Lem, and one we could see playing out in a number of ways, and the Crossroads Inn seems as likely a setting as any. And those are our thoughts, great and small, about the thematic significance of the Crossroads Inn and its long and compelling presence in the narrative. We hope you found a lot to think about today. Whether you agree with our theorising or not, we don't think the narrative connections and themes connecting the inn to numerous threads of George's complex tapestry can be denied. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode all about the crossroads of A Song of Ice and Fire, and we'll be back soon with a new episode for you. And now, as usual, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to Mikhail Schick from Vassals of King's Grave Podcast for lending us her amazing vocal talents for this episode's advert, and on short notice at that. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for giving us the crossroads and the many directions it takes us in, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to Jill, Lady Silverwing, Peppernix, Dean, Aileen, Josh, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Aaron, Sasha, Matthew, Whitney, Alexis, Chris K, Marge of the Mage, Jessica, June, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, William James, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Melissa, Yorlen, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arrowdo, Marcel, Joseph of House Rulo, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Lyanna Winter the Little Bear, and Lady Diarliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Amber, Amanda, Crystal, Melinda, Chris, Alex, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arian, Chris V, Greg, Brendan B. Fish, Steve, Zainab, Rebecca Q, Jean A, Megan, Yvonne, Rachel, Felix, Brian, Matt, Rachel Mary, Jose, Michael, Major Woody, Tanner, Iden, Quincy, Dimitri, Scott Greenseer, Ellie, Pat, Direwolf, Martin, Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den, Spend Trails, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Andres, Mary, War and Peace, Wildling Ranger of the Night's Watch, Slayer of Others and Defender of the Night Fort, and the Wolverine Knight, whose sigil is crushed Buckeye Nuts on a maze field. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all of our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there, or find us on YouTube, and of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. 
Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.